talk first just about haemophilia. When you look back to your childhood and maybe your young adolescence, how did you feel about being a boy with haemophilia? Owen? My main memories of being a child with haemophilia when there was no treatment was the pain of getting bleeds in the time that I used to spend in hospital. I used to be embarrassed is probably the word about it. I didn't want to talk about it because when I used to go back to school after having a spell in hospital, it got so boring because no one really wanted to understand about my condition, about having haemophilia. None of the uh, my fellow students or the teachers. So I'd come back into school and they'd say, where have you been for three weeks? Hurt your foot again. And I just found that quite tiresome. How did you feel about being different from your mates, from your friends? I did feel different when I was ill and when I was either when I was in hospital with a bleed or when I was at home with a bleed and I couldn't go out and do the things I wanted to do with my friends, then I felt different. But the rest of the time, I don't think I felt different at all because I just got on with it and I used to play football and do most of the other things that the other kids did. So I don't think I did feel that different. I only felt different when haemophilia actually impacted on my life. Mick, you didn't go to a statutory school. You went to a special school for children with disabilities. How did that feel for you? I just couldn't understand why I was there because I was relatively or seemed relatively normal compared to everybody else. You know, I wasn't in a, a wheelchair permanently, wasn't sort of mentally handicapped, fully compassmentous, you know, probably was one of the, if not the brightest kid at the school because, you know, I wasn't, I did, or I didn't appear to be that disabled. Do you know the rationale behind the fact that you did go to that special school? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it was a combination of a few things. One, that just my parents were told that, that no, no normal schools could um, cope with the haemophiliac because of the bleeding and the having to have treatment and things like that. So rather than put up a fight, they said, OK, I'm just dump me in a special school for the uniquely gifted. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with you, I remember when we talked before, you made a really interesting comment about it was very hard to be a man when you bled. Can you just remember when we talked about that? And what can expand on that a bit? Yeah, I mean, I think what I probably meant was that being a man, you are supposed to be physically strong as well as emotionally strong. And having haemophilia either before treatment became available when I was about 14 years old or even after, because my joints were damaged by then anyway. You couldn't always do the physical things that men are expected to do. And as I grew up and when I became a teenager, I think that became worse. And I probably still do have problems with that if I see someone, um, a woman with uh, a pushchair on the underground and I have a sore elbow, I'll still go and help her take that pushchair up the, the stairs because no one else will do it. And half of me is saying, don't do it because it'll hurt and you might need some more factor treatment. But the other part of me is saying, I can't just watch her doing it because uh, it feels wrong. So when you were both then young adults, HIV came along and you were both diagnosed with HIV... Did that change the feelings that you had about yourselves, being positive? 
Alan? Yes, it did for me. Ironically, I was infected in 1983. I wasn't told until approximately 1985-86. I can never remember, and there's nothing in my notes to say when I was told, but I would say it was roughly about then. And I was in my late 20s. And ironically, I was... It may sound a late age to do so, but I was just coming to terms with living with haemophilia. And there was this treatment that we were using, and despite the fact it was given us a bunch of viruses, it actually worked. Um, And that revolutionised some of our lives in that it worked. And I remember that I was coming to terms with it, and finally at that age I was starting to talk to people, and when I met girls and when I met other people... I was quite happy to say I've got haemophilia and this is how it affects me. And then within about a year, and I remember this very well, of coming to terms with it, I was told, oh, you've got, which then wasn't called HIV, it was called something else. But basically what I was being told was, you've got AIDS, mate, and you probably haven't got more than three years to live. So that set me back. Well, it would set me back anyway, but it it was just thinking back, very frustrating that I was coming to terms with having haemophilia and then I was given this news. Mick? I had a diet sheet come through the, the <laughs> through the post, um, and on one side of it it says, this is what you eat if you are HIV positive, and on the other side it said, this is what you eat if you have the AIDS. Um, and I remember it because at the bottom of every, both sides it said one pint of bitter, which was, I thought, well, that's not too bad then, can't be that bad if you can still have beer. Um, so I found the, the haematology unit up, and they said they couldn't possibly talk about it over the phone. Um, got to make an appointment with the hematologist, so I made one and then thought, I can't wait. Found the GP up, and the GP said, yeah, you'd know for 18 months. I was quite mm-hmm. shocked that they hadn't told me. Um, so <laughs> went to the hematologist, who, who within the space of a, about a minute told me, yeah, I'm sorry, you have got hep B. You've also got HIV. You've probably only got about six months to live, so go out and enjoy yourself, but don't have sex. It's like telling an eighteen-year-old to go out and enjoy themselves, but they don't have sex. It doesn't compute, really. So I think to to a, a huge extent, I just stuck my head in the sand and just carried on with things. Mm. How about you, Owen? Did you disclose the information to friends, family? I basically told nobody. Um, there was um, a local HIV group support group being set up in my hometown, and I shared that with with those people when I met them and I told one other friend but I don't think I told anyone else for about two years and I remember very well a few years ago coming across I was moving and I came across some of the my pocket diaries that I'd used over the years and I'd kept and for two years after I'd been diagnosed all that was in those diaries was my work commitments I was working shifts in a care home and all that was in there was my shift pattern nothing else nothing personal I had a social life but I'd written nothing in it and that was just really weird because that sort of coincided with the two years that I didn't tell anyone and drank a lot more and took a lot more drugs and basically as Mick said buried my head in the sand and pretended it hadn't happened why didn't you tell anyone I was scared I didn't really know what it meant I expected to die very soon um I didn't want to tell my family because the reason for me for telling someone would be so that person could support me. Um, And that would be the only reason. So I didn't tell my parents, and I haven't told my parents to this day, because they would not have been able to support me, and that's not a criticism of them. They just wouldn't have been able to do it. And they would have spent the time worrying about me. So 
my feeling was, well, don't tell them because it'll just worry them. And over the years, I've found people that I can talk to about it and people who have supported me. And that's great. But that's why I didn't really tell anyone. I suppose it's just incredibly scary. If it doesn't happen to you, you have no idea how scary it is to go to the hospital with one long-term medical condition that is a pretty scary one on its own, haemophilia, and to be told suddenly you've got this virus that is probably going to kill you very soon. And the public reaction to what was going on at that time, do you remember? How did that impact on your decisions to tell or not to tell people? All you saw was that there was those tombstones coming crashing down and it was, you know, every time you picked up the paper it was the gay plague or a load of drug users that got got HIV. For me it was like, well, one, what's the point of causing myself unnecessary sort of pain by telling people and being shunned away and things like that? I didn't want to be... I wasn't homophobic, but I just didn't want people to think I was, you know, gay because that isn't how I caught it. You know, I wanted people to know how I caught it, but I thought, well, I can't say anything because you just presumed. I remember being at work once, um, and there was uh, a big three or four page spread in the middle of the sun, um, and it was another haemophiliac in Birmingham who had actually infected uh, a girl. And I remember the the comments made in the office were, well, you know, it's his own fault. He's probably gay anyway, and he deserves to die. And for me, from that point on, it's like I can't even tell anyone I'm a hemophiliac because if that's if that's the sort of the way people think, there's no way. So for me, I, I wouldn't tell anybody I was even a hemophiliac from that point on. When you talk about this time in your life, you like you say you were told you had six months, maybe at the maximum two years to live. You live a very different life now, and you're now both on antiretroviral therapy. Does your feeling about who you are as a person with haemophilia and HIV differ now because of that drug therapy? Yeah, I think uh, the first few years, you just, you, you're just you expecting to die. So for me, it was just live day by day, you know, spend all my money, enjoy myself, have fun, really. I would, I would say the first sort of three, four years were, were really good. You know, I run a load of catalogue debts up. I had a, a half-size snooker table in my bedroom. I couldn't actually play it because my bedroom was too small. But stuff it, I had fun. <laughs> You know, I used to buy my friends all drinks, and I, I couldn't afford it, but I wasn't going to have to pay for it, so... How about you, Owen? Yes, I mean, everything has changed over the years, because we've all been infected for longer than 20 years now, which is quite incredible, thinking back on it. Because I remember leaving the hospital when I was diagnosed, and I remember very well how I felt, and the fact that basically my life was over. And now, over 20 years on... Um, and I basically just got on with my life. There were the two years when I freaked out and hid my head and took loads of drugs and drink and things. But after that, I got started getting my act together. Um, and it shaped who I am, and I think it's had a, an awful lot of influence in the decisions I've made in life. Mick, when you talked earlier on, you were saying about the people you didn't tell and that you never spoke to, and yet our relationship over the, since 2003 and with Owen and I a lot longer, you now talk a lot about your condition how is that how does that help not having to lead two separate lives i spent so many years um i had my personal life with my wife um where we could talk about it on our own in our own home but as soon as we left the house in the morning you know shut that front door 
then it was it was just we had to lead a, a totally separate and different life from from uh, the, the the one we had indoors because we had to watch exactly what we were saying, make sure we didn't spill anything out, make sure we we covered ourselves if we had to go for a hospital appointment or a checkup or a, um, anything at all. And it was just it, it was uh, the first ten years of our marriage. It was just like sort of leading completely separate lives, and and to do that and the stress levels to try and maintain that and keep it up. It's horrendous. All that's gone. It's like a huge weight gone. Now, Mick, you're very open now about your diagnosis, extremely open to everybody you, uh, <laughs> that you meet. But, Owen, that's still not the case for you, is it? Can you just talk about where you are with this idea about disclosure? Who do you talk to and who don't you? Well, firstly, I should say that my real name isn't Owen. It's the name I use for doing things like this. And I suppose the main reason is because... I mean, I, I'm exactly the opposite to Mick, really. I'm married and I have two children. When I'm at home, HIV is just not an issue. It's not something I particularly talk to my family about because I don't need to talk about it. I get my support by talking to people like Mick and you, Sean, and other people I know and other people I work with. But when I'm at home, it's it's really not an issue unless I'm poorly and I haven't been for a few years, so that's good. And I live. I basically live a lie. Um, people don't know about me where I live. My family don't know about me. And that's something I, first of all, I didn't tell people, as I've explained, because I didn't think that my family could would be able to support me. And then I think when I had children, that was a decision my wife and I had to take. And I remember us very well talking about it and saying that at some point we're going to have to discuss whether to tell them or not. And sort of it never really... What what age do you tell a kid? Um, you can't tell them at two or three because they wouldn't understand. So then you start thinking, well, do you tell them at six or seven, eight or nine, and now they're teenagers? Um, and a lot of people think that that's really weird and they think I'm a bad person because I don't tell them, which doesn't bother me because there are a lot of things in my life and my wife's life that my kids don't know about and will never know about. There are things in my life that my wife will never know about and I'm sure it's the same the other way around. So it's, it is, I suppose, it's a secret, and I suppose I live a lie, but I've become so used to it that actually it doesn't bother me anymore. If you were at a party and you met somebody, is there ever occasion you think you might actually say, I have haemophilia and I'm infected with HIV to somebody that you met for the first time? Not, not in my social life in my hometown or with my friends or family, but then... I suppose I'm really sad because a lot of my socialising is done at conferences where people have either have HIV... Safe, in a safe environment. In a safe environment. Mm. Um, and that is quite therapeutic for me. But I don't think... I, thinking back on it, thinking now, no, I would never do that if mm. I was with my wife or with my other friends and I met someone. And yet I'm quite happy to do it when I'm with a group of doctors, nurses and mm. other people. What about you, Mick? God, yeah. If they asked me, I wouldn't. I wouldn't volunteer it out because I don't. You know, what's the point? I, I, you know, I don't volunteer out what I do as a job. I don't volunteer out how how long I've been married. You know, how many girlfriends I had previous to Caroline. You know, it's not something you do. But if somebody turned around and says, you know, you're one of them hemophiliacs, you're you're you HIV positive, I say, yeah, not a problem at all. You've got a problem with it? Go away. If you haven't, ask me more. I don't tell people because 
it's a part of my life that's actually none of most people's business. I don't want to meet someone at a party and they're going to say, I've got cancer. Do you want to know about my cancer? I've got no... You know, unless I get to know that person and become attached to them, no, I don't. I don't you, want to know it. If you see somebody at a party and they've got no hair, and if yeah. you're like me, I'd say, "Oh, what's, what's going on there? What's wrong with you?" I'd ask them, "Would you want them to lie to you?" No, I wouldn't. Because it, it, by doing that, for me anyway, it perpetuates stigma. It just yeah. carries it on. Unless people stand up and say, "Yeah, actually, I've got HIV. Stuff you like." This is how I got it. Not my fault. Whatever. Unless people start doing that, the, the stigma is never ever going to go away. I think the interesting thing is what you're saying, actually, is there's lots of aims to disclose, and it could be personal, you just want to talk about yourself, but there are political aims, aren't there, to this, and there's also the issue about reducing stigma, and I suppose, we, you know, there's a lot of reasons you may or may not disclose yeah. the information. But part of the reason, and this is where I agree with Mick, that we have all been infected now for over 20 years, and almost all of us do not think it was an accident, and... One of the reasons that not much has happened until recently about that is because we have been almost <clears throat> programmed to be quiet yeah. and embarrassed. And most people have been like that. And I, that's why I have a tremendous amount of respect for people like Mick and other people who will stand up. Can I just ask one question, one last question to Mick? And that is that you are very, very open now about it, but you weren't once. How did that change? What was the moment that you changed? I can tell you the exact date of the moment. It was January 31st, 2001. Up until that point, I was quite open. I'd, I'd become a lot more open than what I used to be. I'd, I'd, all my family knew, friends knew, or anybody around me knew. But uh, I came home from a weekend in London, or I, think it was, I think it was midweek, I'd taken my wife to see The Lion King for her birthday, we came back on her birthday, and on the, the in the post was a letter from my haematology unit saying that I'd been given 50 bottles of Factor 8 um, that was donated by somebody who just died of variant CJD. So, theoretically, I may have variant CJD, and for me that was just the last straw... Um, the same day, I gathered all my the products up, I took them back to the hemophilia unit, I threw them at them and told them to stick it up their arse. I'm not coming back until I get the, the new synthetic stuff that wasn't made from, from human plasma. We were fostering teenagers at the time. I told, the, <laughs> I told the, 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 one of the foster kids, social workers, literally in a... Th probably a two-minute phone call, you know, because they didn't know anything. I says, look, I've, I've got to tell you, I'm a haemophiliac. I've got HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and I've probably got a new venture CJD now, so I'm not going to the press t today, and, and you'll say, so you, you know, you need to know. She went off on long-term sick and never ever came back again to social <laughs> services. <laughs> but that also that day, I by, by the next morning, I was on Sky News, uh, BBC News, I was on every news you could think of, all the papers, because I just went to everyone, I thought, stuff this. And I've always been the person, if you're going to do something, you've got to do it properly. You've got to do it in one big go. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.